Good morning. Welcome back to another episode of Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. I appreciate you joining us today. So the last two weeks, we talked in depth about some what I found to be internal inconsistencies in the last NARC, both internally with respect to the docu-series and in connection with uh, Agent Boreas's book of the same name, things that just didn't add up, okay? things that, that didn't make sense, either were factually inaccurate or inconsistent, just where one place said one thing and one said another, both can't be right, makes you question, I think, everything, right? You know, if, if for example, we talked about, you know, Agent Brea saying that Zavala was kidnapped the day after Camarena and Rene Lopez Romero saying, no, it was the same day, both can't be right. If somebody's wrong about a basic fact like that, how do you know who to trust? Okay, so we spent two episodes going through that. I think it was fruitful. Today, we're going to talk in just a couple moments again about kind of those internal inconsistencies, but we're not going to look at the last narc. We're going to look at a different book, and I think we're going to see why it's so important to get the facts right, why it's so critical that we don't accept false facts, okay? And I think it's going to be interesting and uh, hopefully fruitful. But as we've done in the past, I I said a couple weeks ago that every week we're going to start with a little update on Carl Quintero and um, a, a little bit of news coming out last week. So it's expected that sometime this week the U.S. government will submit up to four indictments to the Mexican government as part of the extradition process or the request for extradition. Now, we've talked a little bit in the last couple weeks about whether or not the government of Mexico is likely to agree to extradite Caro. Would they want him to serve the rest of his sentence in Mexico before doing any extradition? But uh, since we don't know about that, what we do know is that these extradition papers are going to be submitted by the U.S. government. What's kind of interesting is the interplay between the different jurisdictions. Principally, there's two jurisdictions that seem to have the most interest in having a trial of Caro Quintero in the United States. One, of course, is the Central District of California. And the other is the Eastern District of New York. Let's start with the latter. The Eastern District of New York would try Caro Quintero on drug trafficking charges. Nothing else. Nothing really directly related to the Camarena case. You'll go back and remember that um, that was the jurisdiction that charged and successfully convicted El Chapo. And so some of the argument is, hey, this jurisdiction's already done that. They've got the, the machinery. They can handle it. They've got an indictment for it. Some discussion about whether or not the case against Carl Quintero 
would be as strong in that jurisdiction as it was against El Chapo. Keep in mind that there's really no evidence, uh, I think, that, that would be readily producible in court, or at least there may not be, uh, with respect to kind of the last decade or so of Carlos Quintero's activities, right? You know, while he was, um, after he was released, while he was on the run, are there witnesses who are going to be able to testify as to his involvement in drug trafficking, things of that nature? Then if you go pre- previous to that, remember he was in jail for a number of years, so you'd have to go back and find witnesses that could testify, et cetera, from you know, back in, in the early 1980s. That could be a difficult process. So that's one potential jurisdiction. Second potential jurisdiction is the Central District of California, which is where he would be tried with respect to probably some drug charges, but most importantly in connection with the kidnapping, torture, and murder of Agent Camarena. A couple of interesting things about that. Number one is, I think, from a public relations standpoint, wouldn't it be very difficult for the U.S. government to say, all right, we want to prosecute Carl. We want to make sure he goes to jail. The best place for us to do that is going to be in the Eastern District of New York, on drug trafficking charges, and by the way, we're not going to try him on charges relating to the Camarena case in the Central District of California. Find that very hard to believe. Now, could there be two trials? Of course, there could. Um, but again, you have some issues with respect to um, witnesses, witness availability, timing, you know, appeals, everything else. So. I think in addition to just where is it going to be, if you're going to have both, there's going to be a big question and perhaps an internal debate uh, and and even internal fight as to which one would go first. Um, The other thing that's kind of interesting is there's some some reporting, and uh, in particular, uh, Jesus Esquivel, J. Jesus Esquivel, um, in Processo Magazine, and keep pay attention to that name because it'll come up in a second. But he talks a little bit in an article from last week about which case is stronger. And he makes the point that the case in the Central District with respect to the Camarena charges would be the stronger jurisdiction, the stronger case against Caro Quintero. We've talked a little bit in the past, and I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, number one, you've got the inconsistent government um, trials in the past. You've got witnesses from trials in the past who have um, been scrutinized for decades and may or may not be as reliable of witnesses. You've got witnesses that may be called to testify who weren't strongly cross-examined in the past, who clearly would be cross-examined uh, strongly now, you have witnesses who are either dead or um, witnesses, potential witnesses who are now in Mexico and have uh, little interest in talking to the the U.S. government. 
Um, so I think there are issues with respect to a trial in the Central District of California on the Camarena charges. Having said that, um, one of the realities of life, again, everybody knows I, I tr- was on the team that represented Ruben Zuno Arce in two trials. And uh, again, I was not the lead attorney by any stretch of the imagination. First trial, I was a summer associate working hard, just trying to to learn what was going on. Second trial, I knew a little bit more, but I was still a young attorney, had a lot more involvement, um, was able to express opinions a lot more, and and really involved in strategy a lot more. But um, you know, we did. I thought. A very good job. Was it a perfect defense? Um, you know, did we make any mistakes? I'm sure we did. If we'd had more time, could we have done more? Absolutely. But my point here is, I don't think, absent a Perry Mason moment where we could prove, you know, that Mr. Zuno was in a different country on February 7, 1985. I don't think there was any way we were going to win that case in front of a jury. The same is probably the case with Caro Quintero. If you imagine in your mind the case that the U.S. government could present, one could surmise that a jury, and, and, and juries generally try very hard to do a good job. Okay, So even a jury doing its absolute best to listen to the evidence. I got to tell you, I think most juries, most jurors are going to convict Caro Quintero in their minds, consciously or not, before any defense is ever put on. So maybe that's the reason to go to... uh, the Central District, maybe when it's said that's an easier case, it's because of that issue, um, as opposed to kind of the more nebulous and more generalized uh, allegations relating to drug trafficking. Nevertheless, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we should hear a little bit more about what actually was presented and maybe where uh, things are headed with respect to those internal conversations of if there's an extradition, where would it go? Okay, so that's um, that's that part. Now, I told you that we're going to talk again about some inconsistencies and some issues. And I want to take a, a half a step back and go back to uh, the first episode, so two episodes ago, where we talked about the last narc. And, and I asked the question, and rhetorically, but for, for discussion purposes, why talk about the last narc again? And one of the things we said there is because facts are important and because people believe facts. And I told uh, the story of someone on the news. It was a local newscast, but a national, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS, local affiliate, who said, point blank, 
no hesitation, no reservation that Felix Rodriguez was involved in the interrogation and murder of Agent Camarena. And I got a hold of this reporter and I said, where did you come up with that? And he says, well, it's in Hector Boreas's book. And I said, did you do anything to corroborate that? No, didn't need to. Why not? Because it's in Hector Boreas's book and he's got the three witnesses and that's good enough for me. So facts, <laughs> you know, things that are portrayed as facts get accepted as facts and get repeated as facts. And while we've spent a lot of time going through questioning the asserted facts, not everybody has access to you know, the, the documents and materials that make us question some of those facts. And as a result, people's reputations are impacted. And more importantly, as I've said over and over, there's no justice. Justice only comes about when we know the truth. And there's a book that was written by J. Jesus Esquivel called La CIA, and I know I'm not doing that correctly in, in Spanish, so I apologize, but La CIA, Camarena y Caracantero. Okay? The CIA, Camarena, and Caracantero. It was initially published in 2012, I believe. There's been some updates. Um, and I want to go through a few portions of this book. And here's why. Mr. Esquivel is, as best I can tell, a very respected journalist. Um, he's worked a lot in areas around uh, cartels, the drug trafficking trade, etc. He's in Processo Magazine a lot. I told you he is working actively on the Cairo Quintero case. Etc. So I think, um, you know, again, a respected journalist who I assume was writing a book with all of the intentions of a good journalist writing a book of this nature. That is to tell the true story to get the facts correct. So that's number one. Number two, um, in addition to speaking to Agent Boreas, Esquivel says that he talked to three witnesses, and they go by J1, J2, and J33. Pretty clear, we know who those three witnesses are, Godoy, Lopez, Romero, and uh, Lira. We also know that in one place he talks about Lopez, Romero, but he's not... Allegedly, he's not just taking uh, Agent Perez's word on what these guys says. He's talked to him, and that's going to be really important in a couple of minutes. So that's number two. Um, I also think it's important to note before we look at the specific allegations that I've reached out to Mr. Esquivel a couple of times, um, offered to talk to him. Would like to get, have gotten his input. Um, 
He has told people that <laughs> I've talked to that he didn't want to do that, um, may not like what I'm doing, may not like me. Um, but as, as before, my goal here isn't to uh, you know, take down a journalist I have no quarrels with Mr. Esquivel other than you got to get the facts right. And if you're a respected journalist, if you're writing in Mexico in particular, you know, this book was published in Mexico, it's written in Spanish. If you're going to do that, you have an obligation, both as a journalist and just as a moral person, to get things correct. And I'm going to spend the next few minutes. This isn't going to take all day. But we're going to go through a couple of things. And just talk about things that are don't make sense. Things that just don't add up. And question again. If that's the case. What does that say about the process? What does that say about fact finding? And we're going to make a couple of conclusions at the end. All right. So a couple of really important things from the book. The first is he repeats the allegations that Jaime Kirkendall, the resident agent in charge of the Guadalajara office, uh, Agent Camarena's immediate supervisor, Agent Camarena's friend, was somehow on the take. And he recites a couple of different scenarios to get us there. One thing that's very interesting is he says that in August of 1984, Fonseca had a reunion of some narcos, some police, and that at that time, there was a gringo there. A gringo who spoke very good Spanish, was white in complexion, light brown hair, and medium height. And if you read the analysis and, and the rest of the story, that person is identified later uh, as being Jaime Kirkendall. Here's the interesting thing. If you look at the description, okay, speaks very good Spanish, absolutely true. White in complexion, absolutely true. Light brown hair. Believe that to be true, especially in 1984. Medium height, no, 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 no. I mean, Kirkendall is a tall man. Nobody, nobody in Mexico in 1984 would have said, that's a person of medium height. Nobody, okay? So that's that's a question. And again, I I, I really would love to know the thought process here. Was there any questioning? Was there any back and forth? Was there any pushback on what they said? Or are you simply accepting anything that they say with, without, uh, you know, without thought, without analysis? So that's number one. Here's where it gets interesting. So on pages 99 and 100 of this book, again, it's in Spanish, but you know, as we did with the last arc, I'm going to tell you exactly where you can find this stuff. It says that in April of 1991, in the federal court in Los Angeles, California, 
during a, her- a hearing against Juan Ramon Matabasteros, J33, and another witness, Rene Lopez Romero, took the stand to relate the occasions they had personally seen the Honduran with the cartel chiefs and the day they kidnapped and tortured Camarena. Okay? So, number one, April of 1991. What is wrong with that date? Well, number one, I can't find any record of a hearing occurring in April of 1991 relating to Juan Ramon Matabasteros. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. I'm just saying I can't find any record of it. More importantly, though, think about this. If Godoy and Lopez Romero are the ones who are saying they testified, in April of 1991, does that add up at all? No, it doesn't. Why doesn't it? Go back to the dates we talked about. And specifically, remember we talked about the dates that Godoy and Lopez Romero first come to the United States when they're interviewed. And we did it in particular with respect to the new trial motion of Ruben Zuno Arce and the appeal at the Ninth Circuit. So we were very, very careful, very meticulous about when these guys came to the United States. So what do we know? Godoy was arrested in Mexico in 1991. He was interviewed in Los Angeles by the DEA as set forth in DEA 6 transcripts. The first DEA 6 report relating to an interview in Los Angeles by the DEA is dated August 1991. Not April, August of 1991. Lopez Romero, remember, came after the fact. His first interview with the DEA is in March of 1992. So, (laughs) I ask you, how could they have testified at any hearing in April of 1991 relating to Juan Matabiasteros or anyone else. And the other thing is, they go on to say that it was at that hearing that they saw Jaime Kirkendall and said, oh my God, that's him. That's the guy who took the money from Fonseca. Jaime Kirkendall was nowhere near Los Angeles in April of 1991. The trial was long since over. He wasn't called to testify at any proceeding relating to Juan Mata Ballesteros in 1991. It makes absolutely no sense. And the illogic is continued. So I want you to listen to this. Page 43 of the book. Um, the author questions, the author being Mr. Esquivel, questions J1, Jose 1. And he says, um, you know, how can I provide, or how can I confirm, verify the information you provided me on the Camarena case? 
And Jose Juan says, well, from the reports of Operation Landa, which is what we've gone through, which is what we just relied on. Okay? The reports of Operation Landa say when they were first interviewed. But more importantly, the question is posed. In what year did you testify in federal court in the United States? Answer. Answer on page 43 of the book. Quote, in 1991 in the federal court of the Central District for the trial of Juan Ramon Mataballesteros, Ruben Zuno Arce, Jose Bernabri, and Javier Vasquez Velasco. That is wrong. We know it's wrong. Hey, number one, it wasn't 1991. But more importantly, not, neither Godoy, Lopez, nor Lira testified at the trial involving Juan Ramon Matapasteros, Jose Bernabe, or Javier Vasquez Velasco. The primary witness against them at that trial, especially against Zuno Arce, was Hector Cervantes Santos, not Godoy, not Lopez. They never testified in that trial. How can you get that wrong? Again, not trying to attack anybody's integrity, but if you're a respected journalist, that's a simple fact. Everybody who was involved knows that's a fact. How can you get that wrong? And if that's what they said, how can you believe them about anything else? Okay. After that little rant, here's a couple of other things that I find very interesting from the book. Um, in page 41 of the book, it said that Agent Boreas, Hector Boreas, was one of the DE agents sent to Guadalajara to assist in the investigation in February of 1985 immediately upon or immediately after the kidnapping of Agent Camarena. We all know that's not true. Absolutely false. Again, a simple fact that is misrepresented here and stated as a fact. Completely wrong. A couple of other things, um, one that, that's a little bit interesting is the book talks a little bit about the rendition of um, Dr. Alvarez Machine, whether, um, you know, how, how it went down, the role that Beret has played in it, the um, degree to which there were uh, it was approved by others in the in the DEA or whether it was kind of Hector working on his own. But it says in there that um, Boreas told Mr. Esquivel that he and Doug Keel had traveled to D.C., met with um, Jack Lawn, who authorized him to bring Alvarez Machine out of Mexico, bring him into the United States. Uh, I think it's interesting to note a couple of things. One is, as I understand it, Mr. Lawn had already left the DEA prior to the time 
that Boreas allegedly made this trip to D.C. As it's recited in the book, again, page 163, uh, Doug Keel has said, didn't happen, didn't go there, didn't go then, had nothing to do with it. Uh, I'm also told this is completely anecdotal, so could be wrong. Uh, I, I realize the, the plural of anecdote isn't data, but uh, anecdotally, at one point, Elaine Shannon, when she was working on Desperados, asked Boreas about this claim and if he had any proof of it, and he never provided any such proof, and it may well be has refused to talk to Ms. Shannon at any time since then. Okay. This one's a little bit more ephemeral in some respects, but another example of Hector Boreas's statements being accepted as true and not really verified, or if there's any questioning about it not being presented. Remember, one of the things we said about the last NARC, the series, and about Tilla Russell is, why not present alternatives? Why not talk about, say, you know, others say this. Or here, you know, here's something that, that questions it. You figure it out yourself. No, instead, everything's presented as facts, and it's the same way here. Um, in the book, too, there are times when um, there is a discussion about Kiki's day planner, okay? Agent Camarena's day planner. And... I'm not going to go into a ton of detail on it at, at this point. We may well do it a little bit later. But some of this we talked about when we talked about Buendia. And remember, Buendia was the reporter who was killed about a year earlier. Um, he may have been working on uh, stories that related to the American government involvement in drug trafficking, but far more uh Realistic was the idea that he was really focused on the role of the Mexican government in kind of collaborating with or uh, somehow acquiescing to the cartels and that that's what got him killed. That's what the Mexican government decided. Uh, it is an interesting story that the person who initially was assigned to investigate the case was actually involved in uh, the murder itself. Uh, and uh, apparently was very, very bad at it. <laughs> so apparently he was in, in charge of the investigation, and uh, you know they'd, he'd go in with other people and go, okay, nothing to see here, and his subordinates started to wonder what the hell was going on, and he ended up getting caught. Anyways, so you know that there's this mythical connection that Agent Perez has made between Buendia's Killing and Agent Camarena. And there's the allegation that's been repeated in this book by Mr. Esquivel saying, hey, that Hector kind of discovered the, D, the, um, the day planner and that, uh, you know, there, there was um, Buendia's number in it. And, and that's just absolutely false. Hector didn't discover anything. Remember I told you at one point, he, there's a, a YouTube interview with him where he says that he went and he found it off of Camarena's desk, like somehow Camarena's desk was preserved for years just so that he could show up and, and take a look at it. Completely false. 
completely false, ridiculous. Uh, moreover, everything off of, of Camarena's desk had been reviewed by people from Operation Landa, uh, some of whom we've, we've discussed, and there was nothing in there. Moreover, if you listen to everything that Agent Boreas has said, sometimes it's that Buendia's number was in the planner. Sometimes it's that Buendia's number somehow was, uh, you know, when they ran the, the phone records for Camarena, uh, that number came up. At most, it came up once, I think. I don't think it's even. there's even an allegation that, you know, there were multiple calls or anything like that. Um, but again, the story's conflicting, even from Boreas. He can't get it straight himself. And more importantly, the DEA looked at everything. There's nothing in there. And the last point again is, we're talking about several, you know, almost a year apart. There's no indication that these two events had anything to do with one another. And no allegation at all that anybody knows whether or not Cameron ever talked to Buendia and if they did what in the heck they talked about okay so that's to call that a red herring is an insult to red herrings it's not even that it's complete misinformation look I, I could spend a lot more time going through Mr. Esquivel's book and pointing out more things of this nature. But I don't think that's uh, productive or as interesting. I think when you dissect what we've looked at today, the fact that Godoy and Lopez talk about being at trials where they couldn't have been, trials that didn't exist, hearings that didn't exist, seeing people who couldn't have been there, it doesn't make any sense. And yet, it's perpetuated by a respected journalist presented as fact and accepted by a lot of people. That, I submit to you, is flat out wrong. And it's an injustice to everyone who worked on Leanda, everyone who cares about the truth the truth of the circumstances around Agent Camarena's murder, and it's an injustice to Agent Camarena himself. And I sit in front of my computer with my microphone and my Diet Coke once a week talking to you because I don't want this injustice to go unchecked. Facts matter. If you're going to say, I, Tilda Russell, or I, Jesus Esquivel, am going to put this out, and I'm going to present these things as facts, damn it, they should be facts. And if you're going to get simple things wrong, what trial they talked at or testified at, when Zavala was kidnapped, 
things that are very clear. If you're going to get them wrong, why should we trust you about anything else? And more importantly, why should we trust Godoy, Lopez, and Ramiro about anything? Anything at all? And I submit to you that the answer is we shouldn't. And circling back to what we talked about first thing this morning, that's going to be an issue if they ever try to put any of these three witnesses on the stand in a case against Cara Quintero. Okay. That's our discussion about Mr. Esquivel's book. Again, I've reached out to Mr. Esquivel in the past. If he would like to discuss this with me on a podcast, on a video, in person, on the phone, email, whatever, I'm easy to find. We'd be more than happy to to have a discussion. Next week, we are going to take a very slight deviation. If you've been watching the news, there's been a lot of activity in border state or border states um, or border cities. Sorry, Tijuana, Mexicali, uh, some other places. Lots of activity. You know, car burnings, uh, kidnappings, other things of that nature. There was a uh, alert put out in, in uh, Tijuana this weekend for Americans to shelter in place. We're going to take a look at the genesis of this, the degree to which it's related to cartel activity, and the degree to which that cartel activity has its origins or somehow traces back to Caro Quintero, both his recent arrest and uh, the circumstances surrounding the breakup of the coalitions around him and Fonseca and Felix Gallardo in 1985 or so. So that's going to be next week. Um, keep a lookout. I expect us to have the YouTube channel ready to go. Again, I mentioned the video uh, that's going to be on there. Having a little bit of trouble getting it uploaded in a way that that works for me. Working on that. Hope to have that soon. Same thing with the website. You're going to love the new website. You're going to be able to access documents and information in a whole new way. Will be really productive. That's it for today. Thank you so much for joining. Again, if you like the episodes, please tell your friends, leave comments, and uh, if you want more information on the case, look for my book, Someone Had to Die, and we will talk to you next week.